Before we get to today's headlines, we're excited to invite you all to dig into bonus content, engage with the Murder Minute community, and talk to show creators on Himalaya Plus. Download the Himalaya app to get these perks and early access to episodes. The first 500 subscribers will be entered to win a $500 gift card. Welcome to Murder Minute. On today's episode, the tragic story of Grace Brown and Chester Gillette. But first, your true crime headlines. Two Ohio teenagers are facing reckless homicide charges after they pushed a log off a cliff, killing a woman who was taking pictures below. The incident happened in Hocking Hills State Park in Logan, Ohio on Labor Day. 44-year-old photographer Victoria Schaefer was taking senior portraits in an area of the park when she was struck by the 74-pound log. Schaefer died at the scene. Police received a tip about the involvement of the teens, one of whom had sent a text message to a friend alluding to the incident. When they were questioned, both teens confessed to having been at the park and to pushing the six-foot log off the cliff, causing it to fall nearly 75 feet. The teenagers have not been identified due to their age. Speaking to reporters, Schaefer's son John urged forgiveness insisting that it's what his mother would have wanted, and promising that if his mother's death was the result of a bad decision by two teenagers, he would attend their court hearings to urge the judge not to order a punishment that would ruin their lives. The former Fort Worth police officer who has been charged with murder after killing a woman in her own home has refused to offer his side of the story. Aaron Dean was called to the home in Fort Worth after a neighbor noticed the front door was open and requested that police perform a welfare check. During that welfare check, Dean opened fire and killed 28-year-old Tatiana Jefferson, who was playing video games with her 8-year-old nephew inside her home. Jefferson died of her injuries, and Dean has since resigned from the police force and been charged with her murder. While police have body cam footage and the account of the eight-year-old eyewitness, Dean has refused to offer his account of what happened that evening. In most police shootings, the officer will give an account of his version of events, either immediately following an incident or within 72 hours. Dean has refused to be interviewed or to offer a written statement. His attorneys have told police that their client will release a statement at a later date. Dean is currently free on $200,000 bond. Actress Felicity Huffman has reported to prison to serve a 14-day sentence for her part in a college admissions scheme that has led to charges against numerous wealthy and high-profile defendants. Huffman pled guilty to conspiracy to commit mail fraud and honest services mail fraud for paying $15,000 to the scam's mastermind, Rick Singer, as part of a scheme to cheat on the SATs and boost her daughter's test scores. She was sentenced to two weeks behind bars, followed by one year of supervised release and 250 hours of community service, as well as a $30,000 fine. The Oscar-nominated actress will serve her sentence at the Federal Correctional Institution in Dublin, which is about 40 miles east of San Francisco. 
the low-security facility houses about 1,200 inmates and was once named among the 10 cushiest prisons in America. Huffman is expected to serve her full sentence, as good behavior credit is not awarded to inmates serving sentences of less than one year. Those are your true crime headlines. Up next, Grace Brown and Chester Gillette. But first, a quick break. Ladies, we all know that a good bra is like a good relationship. It's hard to find one that you're comfortable with. One that holds you tight, is always supportive, and will last. Third Love is here to help you find your perfect fit. That's because Third Love knows that it's not just size that counts, it's shape. Third Love has over 80 sizes, including their signature half cup sizes. Their online fit finder quiz helps you identify your true size and shape and matches you with the styles that are your perfect fit. My shape is the plunge, and this is the most comfortable, best-fitting bra I've ever worn. No more slipping straps, no more itchy labels, no underwire cutting into your flesh. Third Love uses lightweight, super-thin memory foam that molds to your body. Third Love are so sure that you'll love your bra that they offer 60-day returns. Wash it, wear it, put your bra to the test, and if you don't love Third Love, return it for free, and Third Love will wash it and give it to a woman in need. Third Love knows there's a perfect bra for everyone, so right now they're offering my listeners 15% off their first order. Go to thirdlove.com minute now to find your perfect fit. That's 15% off your first order at T-H-I-R-D-L-O-V-E dot com slash minute. Have you thought about talking to someone but don't know where to start? Is there something interfering with your happiness or preventing you from achieving your goals? It's time to get BetterHelp. BetterHelp offers online counseling with licensed professionals who specialize in issues such as depression, anxiety, relationships, trauma, LGBT matters, grief, self-esteem, and more. Get better help at your own time and your own pace. Connect with your counselor in a safe, private online environment. Anything you say is confidential. And if you're not happy with your counselor, request a new one at any time at no additional charge. This is truly an affordable option. And now, BetterHelp is offering our listeners 10% off their first month with the code MURDERMINUTE. Get BetterHelp today and start communicating in under 24 hours. Go to betterhelp.com slash MURDERMINUTE. Fill out their simple questionnaire and get matched with a counselor that you'll love. That's betterhelp.com slash murder minute. Welcome back to Murder Minute. On today's episode, the tragic story of Grace Brown and Chester Gillette. 
Chester Gillette was born in 1883 in Montana to Louisa Gillette and Frank Gillette, a successful businessman. His parents were financially comfortable, but following a religious conversion, gave up their worldly ambitions and joined the Salvation Army. As part of their charity work, the Gillette family traveled around the United States and as far away as Hawaii as missionaries during his adolescence. But Chester didn't share in his parents' beliefs. Chester Gillette believed that life was about having as good a time as you can. He wanted to break away from his puritanical upbringing. And when Chester reached adulthood, he got his opportunity. When on the generosity of his wealthy relatives, he was enrolled in Oberlin College's preparatory school in Ohio. But in 1903, after two years of failing grades, Chester left the academy. For the next two years, he drifted, working odd jobs, when finally, in 1905, his uncle stepped in, offering Chester a position at his skirt factory in Cortland, New York. In Cortland, Chester Gillette began to thrive. Charming, popular, handsome, and a bit of a flirt, Chester was considered quite the catch by many of the local girls, who were impressed by his stories of his travels. And most smitten of all was a 19-year-old slender, attractive brunette factory worker named Grace Brown. Grace Brown was born on March 20, 1886, and grew up on a farm in nearby Otzelik, New York. Grace was a fun, vivacious young woman who loved dancing so much that she was banned from membership at the town's Baptist church. Grace was given the nickname Billy by her friends and family because of her love for the popular jazz song Won't You Come Home, Bill Bailey. She often cleverly signed her letters the Kid, after the outlaw Billy the Kid. In 1904, Grace Brown moved to Cortland to move in with her married sister and look for work, and in 1905, she found work at the Gillette Skirt Company. Chester liked many of the factory girls, but he gave special attention to Grace Brown. It was obvious to everyone that the two had begun a relationship. For its time, the romance between Chester and the factory girl Grace was considered scandalous. Chester visited Grace several nights a week at her sister's house, where she boarded, but never took Grace out in public or introduced her to his friends. Instead, he persuaded Grace to see him privately and often without a chaperone a great risk to her reputation. But Grace was in love with Chester, and by the fall of 1905, the two began a sexual relationship, and Chester Gillette began living a double life. Two or three nights a week, Chester satisfied his sexual needs with Grace, but publicly, at parties and social functions, Grace stayed home while Chester took out other girls. Young women from the town's more wealthy and respected families 
who were seen as a more suitable match for Chester Gillette, who couldn't be seen with a factory girl. Then, in May of 1906, Grace Brown discovered that she was pregnant. When she told Chester, Grace hoped that he would do the honorable thing by her and marry her. Instead, he offered to pay for her to have an abortion. At the time, it would have meant ruin to be an unmarried mother. Abortions in 1906 were dangerous and illegal, and distraught Grace begged Chester to make her his wife. Chester stalled. While he hadn't refused her, Chester left Grace's fate hanging in the balance for weeks as she waited for him to make a decision. In mid-June, Chester convinced Grace to move back to her family's farm and wait for him there, away from prying eyes. As her pregnancy progressed, Grace wrote letter after desperate letter to Chester from the farm, pleading with him to do the right thing by her. Oh, Chester, she wrote, I came home because I thought I could trust you. I can't help thinking that you will never come for me. But then I say that you can't be so mean as that. And besides, you told me you would come. Can't you write more often? I get so lonesome, dear. Please come and take me away. But Chester was in no hurry to settle down. With Grace out of the way, he began seeing a wealthy society girl named Harriet Benedict. When Grace found out that Chester was seeing other women, she threatened to expose their relationship and her condition. Grace wrote, I hope you are satisfied in having what you call a good time now that you have succeeded in making me leave. It makes me feel badly, dear, to think that you think I didn't know why you wanted me to come home. I know I may be awfully green, but as you say, I ain't no fool. He invited Grace to come on a trip with him to the Adirondacks and suggested in his letters that he was finally ready to do the right thing by her and their child. On July 2nd, Chester wrote, Dear Kid, I think it is best that you should go to Hamilton next Monday morning and meet me there. It would be better to go where we are not known, so we can leave there that day, although I don't know where we can or will go. Chester instructed Grace, now four months pregnant, to meet him at a hotel for what she assumed would be their wedding trip. As she prepared to leave home with him, Grace wrote to Chester, First I said goodbye to the spring house with its great masses of green moss. Then the apple tree, where we had our playhouse. Then the beehive, a cute little house in the orchard. And of course, all the neighbors that have mended my dresses from a little tot up to save me from a thrashing I really deserved. Oh dear, you don't realize what all this means to me. I know I shall never see any of them again. And Mama, great heaven, Mama, I don't know what I will do without her. She is never cross, and she always helps me so much. Sometimes I think 
if I should tell Mama. But I can't. She has trouble enough as it is, and I couldn't break her heart like that. On July 11th, the couple checked in at the picturesque Covewood Lodge on Big Moose Lake. Chester signed in to the hotel register under an assumed name, Carl Graham. His suitcase was monogrammed C-E-G, so Chester was careful to choose a name with the same initials. The next day, Chester suggested that they go out on the lake and see the sights. The couple rented a small rowing boat from a local man named Robert Morrison. Chester told Morrison that they'd be back around dinner time. Grace left her trunk and hat behind. Chester carried his camera, suitcase, and his tennis racket, and the couple set out on the lake. At various times throughout the day, the couple were seen by other boaters rowing and picnicking on the shore. But by nightfall, when Robert Morrison realized the couple hadn't returned, he was a bit worried. Sometimes, tourists underestimated the size of the lake, and on a few occasions after finding themselves too far out to return after dark, would row to shore and check in at another hotel. But when the couple still hadn't returned the next morning, Robert Morrison organized a search party. It wasn't long before they found the capsized boat. Then, a short distance from it, one of the searchers noticed a strange object caught in the weeds at the bottom of the lake. It was Grace Brown. At first, they assumed that she and her companion, Carl Graham, had both drowned in a terrible boating accident. But when Grace's lifeless body was pulled from the lake, they noticed bruises on her forehead. It appeared that Grace Brown had been attacked and then drowned. The search party continued to scour the lake and the shoreline, but Carl Graham was nowhere to be found. When the coroner discovered that Grace was pregnant, investigators started looking into her background and learned of rumors of Grace's romantic involvement with Chester Gillette. Two days later, police found Chester Gillette in nearby Inlet, New York, hiding out in a hotel under an assumed name. At first, Chester denied even knowing Grace Brown. Then, when a search of his room turned up Grace Brown's love letters to him, he changed his story, telling police that she drowned accidentally when the boat overturned. Then, he changed his story again, claiming that Grace had thrown herself from the boat in despair when he told her that he no longer loved her. But the wounds on Grace's head told a different story, and Chester Gillette was arrested. Police believed that Chester Gillette had lured Grace Brown onto the boat, then struck her on the head with his tennis racket and pushed her into the lake, drowning her. 
the trial of Chester Gillette began on November 12, 1906, in the village of Herkimer, the county seat. The three-week trial was front-page news all over the country. The story was covered by so many reporters that a special telegraph station had to be set up in the courthouse basement just to handle all the thousands of words sent out each day. Chester Gillette's defense claimed that Grace jumped out of the boat and into the water and that Chester was just a scared young man who panicked. We went down to the dock and hired a rowboat, Chester testified. Before leaving the hotel, I went in and I got my things and hung up Grace's hat. We started along the south shore and moved slowly, looking for the places that Mr. Morrison spoke of. We saw a rustic bridge and an open camp and a boathouse, and then we went to South Bay. We went out to pick some pond lilies and floated around reading. I had a magazine. We went to a point about opposite Punky Bay and went ashore. I pulled up the boat and asked her if she was hungry, and she said she was not well and couldn't eat. I got the suitcase and used it to sit on because the ground was damp. She sat on it and I put my coat behind her. We were on the shore about an hour. I had my camera out also. When we got in the boat again, we went out on the lake. I'd left my suitcase and my camera and two coats on the bank. We talked about what we ought to do, and I said we ought not to keep on as we had. I finally said I thought her father and mother ought to know of what had occurred. She said she couldn't tell her mother and cried. I told her that she would have to. She said, you don't know my father, you can't tell him. We talked a little more. Then she got up and jumped in the water, just jumped in. When I started to get up, the boat turned over. When asked whether he tried to save Grace, Chester admitted that he had not. He said that he couldn't see her, so he swam to the shore, gathered his things, and went off into the woods, discarding his now infamous tennis racket along the way. I had my suitcase, Chester said, and I decided to put the racket away. I put it under a log in the woods a little ways from the road. Chester, did you strike Grace Brown? His defense asked. A blow in the lake or do anything willfully to cause her death? No, he replied. On cross-examination, Chester had a hard time explaining to the jury Grace's injuries, why he hadn't attempted to save her, why he fled under an assumed name, and why he dumped his tennis racket if it wasn't to cover his tracks. Chester Gillette claimed that he truly loved Grace Brown, despite the fact that he had been openly dating several other women. But Chester claimed that he had never actually promised to marry Grace. Perplexingly, he then stated that he did plan on marrying Grace, all the while testifying that he didn't believe that he gave Grace the impression that they would marry when they left on their trip together. 
He also claimed that he wanted to take Grace out in public as his date, but it was she who refused to go. But Grace's letters told a different story. The prosecution depicted Chester Gillette as a heartless, selfish rake who took Grace Brown's virginity, impregnated her, and then, when she failed to get an abortion and wouldn't keep quiet, coldly plotted and carried out her murder. Grace's letters to Chester revealed a fatal mistake. Grace had told him that she didn't know how to swim. The prosecution read aloud several of Grace Brown's pleading letters to Chester to the jury, and the courthouse was brought to tears. Oh dear, Grace wrote to Chester, if you were only here and would kiss me and tell me not to worry anymore, I would not mind this. But with no one to talk to, and ill all the time, I really believe I will be crazy. Darling, if you will only write and tell me you will come Saturday and not to worry. I am crying so. I can't see the lines and will stop. You will never know, dear, how badly I feel or how much I want you this very minute. In another heartbreaking letter, Grace wrote, Chester, there isn't a girl in the world as miserable as I am tonight, and you have made me feel so. Chester, I don't mean that. Dear, you have always been awfully good to me, and I know you always will be. You just want to be a coward. I know. As Grace grew more desperate, she wrote, Chester, if I could only die. I know how you feel about the affair, and I wish for your sake you need not be troubled. If I die, I hope you can be happy. The doctor says I will, and then you can do as you like. In a letter written on June 22nd, Chester scolded Grace. Don't worry so much and think less about how you feel. I cannot get away before the 7th or the 8th, and I do not think there is any need to worry before then. A few days later, he wrote her again. Perhaps I wrote too harshly Friday about your telephoning and your worry. But it was entirely unnecessary and not at all satisfactory, because I couldn't say what I wanted. I can get away the 7th, or at least I will try, so don't fret until then. If you don't see me until after the 8th, then get worried, but not until then. During the trial, Grace Brown's letters to Chester Gillette were published and widely circulated. In the foreword in the leaflet, the publisher commented, The law will soon decide whether Chester Gillette murdered Grace Brown, and we must not anticipate the verdict. But this much may now be said, that if he has not a heart of ice and a mind callous beyond human conception, not even the menace of the electric chair can rack him with greater torture and remorse than the sob now echoed from the grave of the girl who loved and fatally trusted him. On December 5, 1906, after nearly five hours' deliberation, the jury found Chester Gillette guilty of murder in the first degree, and he was sentenced 
to death by electrocution. Chester was transferred from the Herkimer County Jail to Auburn Prison. After a failed appeal, as his execution date drew near, Chester Gillette reportedly confessed to the murder to his reverend, who never revealed the exact details. On the eve of his execution, Chester wrote in his prison diary, In all that I have done, I hope I have done as men would have me do. I know that I am right with God, and that is the all-important thing. In a final letter to his sister, Hazel, Chester wrote, I wish I had been a better brother, and all that a brother means. You have been all that a sister could be, and much more than I deserve. Though I haven't always lived as I should, I shall at least try to die as I should. On March 30th, 1908, 24-year-old Chester Gillette was executed. The newspapers reported that it was the most successful electrocution that ever took place in the local prison. The current was of 1800 volts at seven and a half amperes, and it was held on one minute and three seconds. Chester Gillette's body was buried in an unmarked grave in nearby Seoul Cemetery. The cemetery has since had a road paved over the section, and the exact location of Chester Gillette's grave was lost. The couple's tragic story later inspired the classic novel An American Tragedy by Theodore Dreiser, which was later adapted into the Academy Award-nominated film A Place in the Sun, starring Montgomery Clift, Elizabeth Taylor, and Shelley Winters. And in 2005, Tobias Picker turned the story into an opera, which made its debut at the Metropolitan. But perhaps a folk song, written at the time of the murder, the ballad of Grace Brown and Chester Gillette, tells the story best in verse. The dreams of the happy is finished. The scores are brought in at last. A jury has brought in its verdict. The sentence on Gillette is passed. Two mothers are weeping and praying, one praying that justice be done, the other one asking for mercy, asking God to save her dear son. All eyes are turned on the drama, a-watching the press night and day, a-reading those sweet pleading letters, wondering what Gillette would say. He is now in State's Auburn Dark Prison, where he soon will give up his young life, which might have been filled with sweet sunshine had he taken Grace Brown for his wife. But Cupid was too strong for Gillette. It was playing too strong with his heart. For the one that had loved him so dearly, yet from her he wanted to part. It was on a hot, sultry day in the summer, when the flowers were all aglow. They started out on their vacation, for the lakes and the mountains to roam. Did she think when he gathered those flowers that grew on the shores of the lake that the hands that plucked those sweet lilies her own sweet life they would take 
they were seen on the clear crystal waters of the beautiful Big Moose Lake. And nobody thought he'd be guilty of the life of that poor girl to take. It happened along in the evening, just at the close of the day. With the one that had loved him so dearly, they drifted along on South Bay. They were out of the view of the people, where no one could hear her last call. And nobody knows how it happened, but Gillette and God know it all. This has been Murder Minute. For true crime anytime, download the Murder Minute app or follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Murder Minute. And now, for ad-free episodes, early access, and bonus content, follow and subscribe on Himalaya.